by not patronizing Punjabi, you're killing the language. Right? And there's a logic embedded in that, which is that states support languages. And one of the things I think that my work shows is that actually states don't support languages, people support languages. And the vitality of a language is not dependent on state support. And Punjabi is, you know, a great example of that. Hi, I'm Sukrat Singh from Zik Archive, and welcome to the 33rd episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers, and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Farina Mir, who is a professor of colonial and post-colonial South Asian studies, with a particular interest in the social, cultural, and religious history of late colonial North India. She is also the author of the book, The Social Space of Language, Vernacular Culture in British Colonial Punjab, which is a study of the Punjabi language and its literature under colonialism from 1849 to 1947, with a particular focus on kisse, which are epic stories or romances. Today, we will be discussing more about this book, including the inspiration behind it, the research methods and the findings that surface, and the role and survival of the Punjabi language under colonial rule to this current day. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for sick children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Farina Mir? I'm a historian of modern South Asia. I teach at the University of Michigan, where I've been since 2003. I did my PhD in history from Columbia University before I started teaching. But my love of South Asian history began actually earlier while I was doing my BA. It was there that I started studying South Asian history. I became intrigued with representations of Punjab's history. And certainly I suspect that, that you know, my being intrigued was, was surely related to my own background. I was born in Nairobi, Kenya, grew up in London and New York, but in a Punjabi-speaking household. And although I didn't study Punjabi until I was in college, my love for the language was, I suspect, fostered very early and in that context. And what does it mean to explore the vernacular culture of Punjab? That's a wonderful question. It's an attempt to signal that what I'm interested in is a more accessible 
culture, right? So the kinds of terms that we use this in relation to are high culture or elite culture, right? And what I was really interested in and what I've always been interested in is, you know, a kind of a history of the people, right? Rather than a history of the state or a history of elites. Um, That is, I've always been interested in the histories that are more difficult to tell. Um, Most history is the history of the state. Most history is based on source material that's either produced by states or by elites, right? Written records. Um, And so I think I've always been kind of, again, animated intellectually by trying to access uh, the histories of, in a way, the nameless and the faceless people, right? But those who are the majority, those who, you know, are the people who represent a norm, right? And that's always a very challenging thing to access. So in, in, you know, in historians' terms, we we often talk about things like the history of everyday life, that's something that many historians have been really engaged with, and it's been something that's that's often been much more possible um, in histories of Europe where different kinds of source material have existed. And I was really kind of keen to try and access that non-elite, um, non-exclusive history. And so for me, vernacular culture is a way of signaling a culture that is inclusive that doesn't require kind of elite status, that isn't a history of the state, but is really a history of society. And how does that manifest in Punjabi society? Yeah, so I think it takes place, you know, in the context of the Punjab. I mean, one is that when we talk about vernacular languages, particularly, right, we're talking about the spoken languages of a society. And one of the things that I tried to lay out in my book is showing how the Punjab was a very, um, how Punjab during the colonial period had a slightly different history of vernacular language than other provinces of India, right? So one of the things that I note in my book is that unlike other provinces of India, let's take Bengal as an example, where the vernacular language, that is the spoken language of the kind of the predominant spoken language in the area, becomes the official language of of the region. And by official, I mean the language of lower level administration, the language of education by the colonial state. In the Punjab, the colonial state made an active choice, really a decision grounded in its own kind of political reasonings, to institute Urdu as the official language of the Punjab. So my attempt to try and recover vernacular culture, the first place to start was with with the vernacular language, Punjabi, the spoken language of most of the people in the region. And through that, the hope was that uh, by studying vernacular literary traditions, that this would allow me some insights into the moorings of Punjabi society. Now, one of the advantages of Punjabi vernacular literature is that while I based my studies, since my work is on the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, we don't have any living exponents from from that time who can provide that history. My source material was printed books and printed materials. But one of the things I try to show in in my book is that 
the genres of literature that were that dominated in the Punjab during this period, and I use the kissa as the exemplary form, these were these are texts which were written and printed. So you have uh, access to a reading public through these, but they were also texts that were meant for oral performance. So the vernacular culture in the Punjab, with when looking at Punjabi, is interesting because it allows you access not only to reading publics, but to what we call listening publics, right? Which means that once again, it allows you access those people who participated with this literature. They didn't actually have to be literate. Right. And one of the things we know historically about the Punjab is that this Punjabi poetry, because it was the vernacular, it was the language spoken by people, forms of literature circulated orally. So you could have people who were illiterate in terms of the ability to read the written word, but who were very literate in cultural terms and could perhaps, you know, could recite poetry to you. Right. And so in that sense, Punjabi vernacular culture because of this overlay of both the literary and the oral in its traditions allows us kind of insights into a, a, into a kind of a different realms of society, not only the literate classes, which during the colonial period were decidedly quite small. Because of the orality of the tradition, it actually gives us access or insight, I should say, into kind of broader realms of society. And may I ask, why is it considered to be vernacular and not an established language? So vernacular isn't, I mean, I don't use the term, I think, you know, originally um, the term itself comes out of a, of a history, out of European history, right? Um, if I recall correctly, the term is often in relationship to Latin, right? where you have a kind of a liturgical language, but also a language of kind of elite culture and statecraft. And then vernacular were the the languages that emerged that are spoken by the people, right? So on the one hand, I think historically, there has been a sense that to refer to something as vernacular is somehow placing a value judgment on it as being lesser than, right? And today, some of the you know, the, the, the category that you would use as your foil might be um, a cosmopolitan language, right? So a language that circulates across uh, wide spaces and is a, a language of a kind of an elite. But when I use the term vernacular language, I'm definitely not engaging in a kind of value judgment that places that language in any kind of lesser position. For me, it really is a reference to Vernacular means the spoken language, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't have, you know, very sophisticated literary traditions, which Punjabi, of course, does, as do many vernacular languages in in the subcontinent. But it really is a reference to a language that operates in different registers, both in literary and in spoken um, kind of arenas. And therefore, again, given my own interests to want to kind of access or try to gain some understanding of Punjabi society at large, the vernacular language provides insights that an elite language or an administrative language alone would not. Now, regarding the timeline of the book, the colonial period, do you start from the arrival of the 
East Indian Company, or is it much closer to the 1858 date? Sure. So when, when we're talking about the colonial period for the Punjab, we do have some very distinct dates, right? And it, it begins in 1849. And what I'm really thinking of is, um, you know, there are two Anglo-Sikh wars in the 1840s. And in 1849, the British East India Company officially annexes the region and begins to administer, right, and is now responsible for administration there. This marks both the end of the reign of, or the the, the Sikh empire, right, of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. It marks the end of that period and kind of formally begins the period of colonial rule in Punjab. So the company rules the Punjab from 1849 to 1858, and then, of course, in 1858, the company is disbanded and, the, and, and Punjab becomes one of the provinces of British India, right? So the colonial period then is from 1849 to 1947 in the Punjab. And could you please share with us more about the colonial encounter with Punjab regarding the language? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So what I argue in my book is that when the company annexes the Punjab in 1849 and they establish um, an administration, one of the things that they have to do is decide what the language of administration should be in the Punjab. And by this point, they've already, you know, they're already administering, their earliest province they started to administer was Bengal, but they're administering other than Northwestern provinces, they have experience. So they take over in 1849. And there was a precedent that they should have followed. And that was something called the Act of 1837, um, Act Number 29, I think it is, of 1837, in which they had established that all administration at the lower levels would be in the spoken languages of the region, you know, the region they were administering. So the idea was that people should be administered in a language that they understand and speak. And so in Bengal, they established Bengali. Um, in parts of northwestern provinces and Bihar, they established Hindustani, or you know what we today call Urdu. Um, and they come to the Punjab, and the logic of that act suggested that they should have, you know, they should have made Punjabi the administrative language of the region. But for a host of reasons, I argue they actually choose to not make Punjabi the official language of the Punjab in their administration. And those reasons are manifold. I mean, I, based on you know an analysis of colonial records, I argue that one, the colonial, the company state does associate Punjabi with the Sikh community, right? Because they understand that there are liturgical languages. So they associate Arabic with Muslims because of the Quran. They associate Sanskrit with Hindus. And they associate Punjabi with Sikhs. And they have just fought two hard wars with the Sikh empire. So one argument I make is that they are shy away from instituting the use of Punjabi because they're afraid that this would actually provide some kind of sustenance to sick political um, aspirations in the region, right? The other is really, you know, what I call administrative ease. That is that when you establish, they have to establish an administration, they need bureaucrats to run that administration. 
And if they institute Punjabi as the language, they have to actually find people who are literate in Punjabi to work in their administration. And so it's advantageous to them to use a language that they're already using in other parts of North India so that they can actually transfer personnel, experienced personnel with ease. So I would say that those are the two biggest reasons that we can see in the record with clarity why they choose to actually go against the logic of Act 29 of 1837, a logic that kind of stated that they should have instituted the spoken language in the region, which was Punjabi, different dialects of it certainly, but was undoubtedly Punjabi. We know for sure it was not Urdu. And yet that's the language that they chose, but it allowed them very quickly to actually move um, move bureaucrats from other parts, other territories that they were administering, and to bring in experienced personnel to administer the region. So the answer to your question in terms of what was their relationship to Punjabi, they could have had a relationship by administering, making it the, the official language of administration. They didn't. Had it become the official language of administration, it would then have been adopted in colonial schools as they were expanding primary education at the time across their territories. Again, because Urdu became the language of administration, Urdu also became the language of education. And so their relationship to Punjabi in a way becomes one of really being at arm's length, right? And so one of the things I argue in my book is that, you know, while this may not have been an intended consequence of this policy, it actually means that the colonial state was less impactful on Punjabi than it was on other Indian vernacular languages like Bengali, Hindi, Tamil, Telugu, all of which were adopted as you know, official vernaculars of state. And I see the unintended consequences of this policy as being that Punjabi was actually able to operate with some degree of autonomy and becomes therefore a very interesting site to examine um, social history from, because it's at a little bit of a remove from the colonial state. And just for clarity, when you say they, you're referring to the East Indian Company. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I use the East India Company and the colonial state sort of um, interchangeably because we are talking about the East India Company, but that was a colonial regime, right, in the Punjab. So yeah, that is what I mean. Sorry. Adding to that, when you refer to some of these findings, could you share with us more about the sources that were available to you for your research? Yeah, so the sources that that I used to try and understand language policy were really is the is the is the archive of the East India Company itself. And they had longstanding debates about what language to use. And so I have the correspondence of different and various administrators, you know, arguing for what the language should be. We also have the evidence of other types of colonial actors who were mapping the Punjab linguistically. So they had the colonial, um, the East India Company and, and British you know, there were there was missionary activity going on. So you have different kinds of actors, right, um, operating in India at the time. One would be East India Company officials and employees. 
Others would be missionary um, missionaries, Christian missionaries, some of whom were British, some of whom were from other parts of the of Europe. Indeed, many Americans. The American Presbyterian Mission played an important role in in language in India, and so. On the one hand, they're producing linguistic information. They're trying to understand what languages people speak, particularly the Christian missionaries, because they want to proselytize to people in their own languages, right? So the Christian missionaries do a lot of important work in mapping the linguistic, uh, in, in producing a linguistic map of India. On the other hand, you have the East India Company officials who are more interested overtly in administration, right, and revenue extraction. Um, And so when they are establishing policy, there are differences of opinion about what the language of administration should be. And so I was able to access the correspondence of East India Company officials talking about what language they should use now that they've annexed the Punjab, some of the arguments about why certain languages should be used. And they recognize that Urdu is not the spoken language of the Punjab. But they argue that there are enough people there who are literate in Urdu that, you know, this would be a fine choice to make and that the other compelling reasons of administrative ease and wanting to contain the sick political threat is enough to justify the argument. And so I've been able to to understand their thinking from their own writings to one another as they were set uh, as they were setting the policy. And I remember reading that they would actively defund institutions that would support the proliferation of the Punjabi language. Yeah, well they they are expanding, you know, the East India Company decides that it is in its interest to begin um, primary supporting primary education in its territories. And one of the interesting things I remember when I was myself learning about this is that this was not something that they were doing in Britain. And then they decided to, you know, extend that kind of idea to India. India is, in fact, the the um, the place where they experiment with primary education, and it's established as a state enterprise in India first, and then exported back to Britain. But be that as it may, um, one of the things that we see is that when they decide to make Urdu the language of education, with that comes a lot of patronage. And the patronage is for things like when you decide that this is going to be the language used for administration and education, you then produce the materials in that language that you need for use in your education system. So there are bureaus for the creation of textbooks. This is forms of patronage. Presses that produce books have contracts with the with the East India Company and then the colonial state after 1858. So there's all kinds of patronage that emanates from that decision to make a language, the official language and the language of education. Of course, Punjabi doesn't benefit from any of that because Punjabi is not the language that is chosen. And so that raises the question that if the state is not patronizing the language um, and those people, writers and, um, you know, is, is not providing an impetus, you know, to the language. One of the questions that I ask in my book is, 
well, how does this language actually survive, right? And we know not only does it survive, but that it thrives during the late 19th and early 20th century. And indeed, I would argue that Punjabi is thriving to this day. But the question that is often, or the assumption that is often made is that states and their patronage are important to the survival of languages. And one of the things that I'm arguing in my work is that that is not actually always the case, right? That because that logic is so kind of well ingrained in our thinking about how languages operate, I'll give you an example. Like a lot of, uh, there's, there's advocacy for Punjabi in contemporary Pakistan. And there, one of the things that people have said about the the absence of state patronage for Punjabi is that by not patronizing Punjabi, you're killing the language. Right? And there's a logic embedded in that, which is that states support languages. And one of the things I think that my work shows is that actually states don't support languages, people support languages. And the vitality of a language is not dependent on state support. And Punjabi is, you know, a great example of that because it has not received state support. And in fact, it's not just that it hasn't received state support in the colonial period. In various ways, we could argue, right, that in the Punjab, Punjabi has never actually been a language of state. Persian was the language of state through the medieval and and, um, early modern periods, right, under the Delhi Sultanate, under the Mughals, Persian was the language of state. And indeed, even under Maharaja Ranjit Singh's reign, Persian continued to be the language of state. So Punjabi has actually never enjoyed that particular status in the Punjab, that is being the language of state. And it has had various varying degrees of patronage, but it has never had enjoyed the patronage of being the state language. And yet the language is vibrant, has this rich literary history, and continues to be, you know, I think a kind of a a thriving site of cultural production in various mediums to this day. What is the role of religion in all of that? From, say, the moment the Christian missionaries claim Punjabi is the language of the Sikhs, which of course is a misconception, to the Sikh leaders in later years fighting for its survival and fair representation. Right. Well, I think that one could say a few things about that, right? One would say that, well, we'd start with, as you said, it's a misconception, right? The the immediate correlation between Sikhism and Punjabi is usually there because it's considered the liturgical language, right? It's considered the language of Sikh scripture. But of course, Sikh scripture is much um, more complex linguistically, right? Braj Pasha is an important aspect of Sikh uh, liturgical literature, what what we might call sacred literature. Um, Persian played a role in in Sikh texts, right? So it's it's a simplification, right, to say that Punjabi is the Sikh sacred language. And yet that is actually an association that many people hold and that the colonial state held, right? So that's one. But having said that, 
I don't think one would want to suggest that there isn't a relationship between Sikhism and Punjabi, right? Um, not least looking at the period that I study, the colonial period, we know that the Singh Sabha did actually draw a connection between Sikhism and Punjabi, that they advocated for the use of Punjabi, that they had a very active publishing program and they produced institutions to to print and publish in Punjabi in the Gurmukhi script, right? So we have institutions like the Vizier Hind Press. We have, um, you know, uh, scholars and uh, literatures like Bhaivir Singh, who play such an important role in advocating for Punjabi. You have a print program that, you know, produces hundreds of tracts in Punjabi, by the Singh Sabha. In fact, it's some, I think one of the, the statistics I, I give in my book based on the scholarship of, of others is that over a million pages are produced by the Singh Sabha in the late 19th and early 20th century. So the Singh Sabha was trying to draw a correlation between Sikhism, a reformed Sikhism, and the use of the Punjabi language. So I think that that one has to, you know, it's a complicated nexus between Sikhism and Punjabi. But I think that in terms of sustaining the language, one could argue that the role of Punjabi compositions in Sikh sacred literature do play a role in kind of sustaining the language. But we could also, of course, point to Punjabi compositions by Punjab's uh, Sufis, that circulate among members of all religious communities that also play a role in sustaining the language. So I think there is a relationship between religion and the Punjabi language. It's not, It's just not a simple equation between Sikhism and Punjabi, right? That's one aspect, I think, of a broader set of relationships that people of different faiths in the Punjab have to the Punjabi language or that different religious traditions in the Punjab both Sikhism and uh, Islam have had a relationship with Punjabi that's deeply sedimented and that people, you know, continue to value to this day. I think the question about, you know, where does... So I think this is the thing that makes the linguistic, understanding the kind of language terrain of Punjab so complicated, right? It's because it's a multilingual society where many languages are operating in what we call different registers, right, for different uses. And so you've got, you know, at the, at the level of what we might call kind of sacred languages, right, you've got Brajbasha, you've got Sanskrit, you've got Arabic, right, and you have Punjabi kind of operating for different people in different spaces. And then you've got what we might call administrative languages, which would have been Persian predominantly, right, for for the entire period that we're talking about. And then you've got vernacular languages. And in the case of Punjabi being the predominant vernacular language or the spoken language in the region, there's obviously a correlation that ties that to its sacred uses as well, right? And so it's a complicated linguistic terrain and trying to tease out what languages were used for what purposes, by which communities, at what times, is part of the conundrum that I was trying to address in my book. 
Would it be possible now to help us understand the role of kisse, what they are and how they help us trace the resilience in keeping Punjabi alive? Yeah, so uh, kisse is a genre um, and it it literally means romance, um, right? Or epic romance is the way I, I translate it. It's a genre that first emerged in Arabic and Persian. So it's a genre that emerged outside India, but then, you know, with with people and with um in the in the medieval period as uh genres kind of traveled across regions. It's a genre that entered the Indian subcontinent um first in Persian, right? So there were Persian kisse. And they start circulating in the Indian subcontinent. And then what we find is that the genre is taken up in local vernacular languages, Punjabi among them. So you have um, as early as the early 17th century is the first kind of Punjabi kissa that we know of, and that's the Mother's Heer. And so the kissa is taken up by literatures by writers in the Punjab. And they write kisse both in Persian, right, which was, of course, the literary language of the, of the region, the elite cultural language, but it's also taken up by um, literatures in Punjabi. And so we have Punjabi kisse beginning from the, from the early 17th century. What I argue based on an analysis of Punjabi literature through the 17th, 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries is that the kissa emerging in Punjabi in the early 17th century becomes a dominant form of literary production in the Punjab in the 18th and 19th centuries, right? So we see in, in terms of the genres that are produced in Punjab, the kissa is a dominant, it's a very well used, it's a very... Um, it's clearly a, a major form that that poets pick up and produce texts in. And therefore, because we have this kind of density of production, we can, um, I argue as a historian, we can use this literary production to try and understand a little bit about social and cultural history at the time. And what is the significance of Heer Ranja in this resilience yeah, so Heer Ranja is, you know, the first kissa that we know of, as I suggested, you know, was, was we date it to 1605, and that is the Modras Heer. So what one of the things that we know, however, is that the story Heer Ranja, right, emerges in Punjab in literary snippets that we have. The story predates the Modras Heer. It's quite clear that the mother was taking a story that was already known and producing an epic length rendition of it. We have evidence going back to as early as the 1520s in the poetry of various figures, including Pai Gurdas Bala, that reference this story, right? So, Hiranja. So, what we know is that from at least the 16th century, the story of Hiranja was circulating in the Punjab in a kind of diversity of circles, you know, whether it was Bai Gurdas or Shah Hussein, right? So uh, figures, prominent figures in Sikh history or prominent figures in uh, Punjab's Sufi and, and Muslim history, 
it emerges in a poet who performs at Akbar's court, right? So we know that the the story is already well known prior to the 1605 kind of epic length rendition. And from there, what we see is the consistent retelling of this story by figures in history. So it emerges not only in the Punjabi Sufi poetry of various figures, whether it's Shah Hussain or, you know, further down the line in the in the 19th century, Khwaja Ghulam Farid. One could name a number of Sufi poets that reference here, that use here as a metaphor for their Sufi poetry. We have epic length poetic renditions. We have the Mudur. We have most famously Vadis Shah in the late 18, um, yeah, late 18th century. And in the 19th and early 20th century, a number of poets take up this story. So the significance of here, it's, it's hard to, um, as an abstraction, answer that question. What I can tell you is that as a historian, one of the premises that I work with is that any story that has circulated so consistently over the course of 400 years in a society that is taken up by poets again and again and again to retell, right, a story that's already well known, that story has some kind of cultural salience. That is that that is a story that resonates within that community. And then the question you have to ask is, well, why does it resonate? And the way that I answered that question was by looking at the content of the story and trying to understand, well, what themes emerge in the story of Heed and Ranja consistently across all of these tellings, right? Because obviously when, you know, Vadis Shah takes up the, the telling of the tale, we know that although this is a story that is being retold, right, he's giving it his own spin. He's giving it his own um, style, right? He's, he is br- bringing poetic newness to the tale, right? So, so it isn't a kind of a stale tradition, just people telling the same story over and over again. Everyone is giving it their own personal um, stylistic kind of uh, specificity, right? Which is why we can, you know, those of us who know the tradition can appreciate Shah Hussain's Ghafis on Heed, and we can appreciate Vadis Shah's poetry on Heed, right? And they have slightly different um, resonances. But the, but the point I would want to make is that what I tried to do kind of methodologically in my book was ask the question of why does this story sort of keep being retold by people? Why does this story um, seem to be some kind of a metaphor, right? And so I looked at the content of the tale and tried to understand what are the most resonant themes that emerge when you look at the actual story of Hiran Ranja and how it's been told over the last 400, now going into 500 years. And what I found by looking at, you know, versions kind of across this era is that there are four themes that really seem central to the story of Heed and Ranja, right? Obviously, it's a love story, right? It's about, uh, in some cases, it's it's uh, it ends, you know, in the mother's Heed, Heed and Ranja go through trials and tribulations, but they end up um, together. In most renditions after that, it's actually a tragedy, right? Heed and Ranja 
it's an unrequited love. They actually, you know, often die at the end of the story. But whatever the case, one of the things that I found by trying to look at the themes that are taken up rather than the literal content of the love story, what I found is that the four themes that seemed really resonant were an emphasis on Zot as the most significant aspect of social organization in the story, an emphasis on locality rather than the idea of even the region as a whole, that is the Punjab, or any concept of a nation, right? Any kind of Hindustan or India. What I found in the stories, a third theme that really resonated was the representation of gender relations, which is a very prominent facet of the story, right? He herself is is the iconic figure and her dialogues with various figures give us insights into notions of gender. And then the last theme that I thought resonated from the tale was um, notions of piety, right? What constituted kind of proper pious behavior and action? And when one looks at those themes and says, okay, so what I argue in my book is that this story has been told and retold for, you know, 400 years because these themes resonate with the people who are listening to the story. And then I go on to try and understand, well, what does that mean for us in terms of understanding Punjab's history? What does the significance of a story cycle that emphasizes these particular themes and its resonance in Punjabi culture, how does that help us understand Punjabi history? You also explore and touch on the experiential parts of it, such as the performing arts, theatre, spoken poetry, which all contributed to the resurgence, which might have had a greater significance because of the low literacy rates in Punjab. One of the the things that colonialism gave us is what's called colonial ethnography, right? These figures who who moved around India and recorded for posterity what they saw the natives doing. But one of the things that emerges from this colonial ethnography is the ubiquity, the, the commonplaceness of the recitation of Punjabi texts. And not just that they were recited, but that there were clear cultures of recitation, that there are, um, they're not only cultures of recitation, but there are cultures of listening. There's a way to interact with the, the people who are performing these texts. And again, I think that, you know, any anyone who is familiar with uh, Punjabi musical, because most of these texts are actually performed and and sung. So that's one of the important things, I think, when we think about in our in a Euro-American context, when you think of literature, one is often um, thinking about the private, quiet reading practice, right? The Victorian, sitting with the Victorian novel. But what we're talking about when we're talking about Punjabi literature is it's not prose, it's all poetry, and it was meant to be sung, right? So the performativity, the orality of the tradition 
is actually embedded in these printed texts themselves that we have. They're all poetry. They're meant to be performed. They're meant to be recited. And we have colonial ethnography that tells us in the late 19th and early 20th century what the cultures were of performance. And, you know, we don't need just colonial ethnography. We have the names of um, of locations in cities, right? There are um, there were there were spaces where where kisakars um, would tell stories, right? And so, what you have in this tradition, this literary tradition, is an embedded orality. They were performed texts, and that helps us understand their circulation, which means their circulation was not only among a literate public who could read the texts. Much more common was their circulation among a broader public um, that could include, and, and indeed we have evidence that it included illiterate people, so people from all classes, therefore, um, who, who could obviously understand, right, because this was their language. This was the language they spoke and understood. So the circulation of this literature was significantly broader than we might think about if we understood them, you know, if we limited our understanding of Punjabi literature to material texts, right, the printed word, and to reading publics, it would be significantly smaller given the very small literacy rates. But given that what we're talking about is traditions that were performed, and performed in accessible spaces, often in villages where people of various classes and castes and genders could be part of the audiences. Um, you have, therefore, these texts allow kind of insights into a broader, a broader public and hopefully help get us one step closer to understanding kind of the norms of sociality in the Punjab, right? Because part of it is that we have to, we know these texts were popular. And so things that are popular are things that actually resonate with people, right? And so they would not have been popular if the themes and the content were not things that actually, you know, using today's language, I would say, like that spoke to people, that resonated with people, that people had an affective relationship to. And, you know, I would say to this day, if you go to a Qabali performance or if you go to, you know, the performance of a Qissa, you can actually gauge in the audience that affective response. Uh, people who know this tradition, you know, and I've, I've seen this in my own experience in, in India and Pakistan, you know, when Hirvadis Shah is performed, from the first few notes, people are already familiar with the tradition and they anticipate, you can hear the kind of gasp in an audience of anticipation looking forward to the performance of verses, right, of Hirvadis that people are indeed, you know, so familiar with the text that they already they already know what's coming. But the pleasure is in hearing it performed, right? And so I think that that you know when we understand that this is a performative culture, that it's an oral tradition, that it's circulating in in ways that allow for very broad participation, we have to understand that 
you know, the 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 printed text is a in a way, it's a window onto a kind of a whole social world. It's not about an individual sitting in a private room quietly reading to themselves, right? It's it's a very different social experience. The text really for me is a a window into this kind of what I call a life world where people enjoy their emotive they they have a relationship to this material and how was that all accelerated with the printing press yeah i mean it's accelerated in so far as one of the things that i think the printing press obviously does is is that the printing press although the printing press as a technology printing had been available in india for centuries one of the interesting things about what we call the history of the book, right, and um, in India, is that as a technology, printing had been known in India for centuries, but it didn't really take root. Manuscript cultures continued to be the norm. And it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century, with the advent of lithography, which was an inexpensive form of printing, but importantly, not just inexpensive, lithography was not typeset printing. It required a scribe. It was only with lithography that vernacular printing in India and across languages kind of takes off. And with that, one of the things that one gauges as a historian is like, okay, well, when print culture begins, what do we see being published, right? What are people eager to both get printed and also to purchase, right? And so what we find looking at Punjabi print culture in the late 19th century, and really printing printing begins sort of in earnest in the 1860s, and you have massive printing happening by the 1870s and 1880s. And one of the things that my analyses of what is printed in Punjabi allows us to see is that the kissa is one of the earliest kinds of texts to be printed, and that it is then printed in, um, I mean, large numbers doesn't capture what I want to say. We see a proliferation of new texts produced in the late 19th century that we can gauge that um, proliferation by the number of those texts that were printed and survive. So, you know, one of the things that that we can suggest is that with the printing press, it's a new arena of circulation, and the kissa and kissa writers take to this, and we see not only the proliferation of production and circulation, but luckily for the historian, we also have the proliferation of a record that we can actually access. You know, manuscript culture gives us some insights into the circulation of texts prior to this period. But luckily, a lot of the texts of the of the late 19th century and early 20th century, even though we often talk about them as historians, we talk about this as ephemeral materials, like materials that it wasn't valued very highly, right? These are, are chap, what are often called chapbooks. They're cheap publications, But luckily, we have enough of these collections have survived that they give a real sense of what was being um, printed and and we see the kissa really becoming a mainstay of late 19th century publishing in Punjabi. 
And how does that evolve in the timeline of history where we begin to see the rise of these religious reform movements, you know, given that Punjabi is heterogeneous, it crosses regional, cultural, religious and caste lines? Yeah, so so one of the things that I think is is actually quite fascinating about looking at you know, the production of the Punjabi Kissa. And as you say, you know, everything that you just suggested is, to my mind, what are hallmarks of the Punjabi tradition, right? That it emphasizes um, locality, it emphasizes kind of shared notions of piety across religious boundaries. So that is, it's a very inclusive tradition, right? It doesn't have barriers of caste or class or gender or religion. So one of the interesting things in the question of the timeline that you're asking me is that this we see the publishing of Gissas take off, right, in the late 19th century at precisely the same time that the religious reform movements are actually becoming anchored in society also. So one of the things that was, for me, a kind of catalyst for my own work on Punjabi history is that you know, because of the partition of India, because of communalism, because of the violence that accompanied the partition um, in 1947, much of the scholarship on Punjab history examines the causes, the sort of, you know, the, the root causes for the partition. Where do we see that emerging? And one of the things that historians have argued is that the religious reform movements play a role in what we call communalization, right? The communalization of society. Now, this wasn't an intended effect on the part of religious reformers. Um, There's no evidence to suggest that they were attempting to cultivate a more communal society. But it is an unintended consequence of the thing that they were actually engaging in, which is they were trying to... and, And religious reformers, whether it's the Singh Sabha, whether it's the Arya Samaj, whether it's, you know, Muslim Anjumans, there are shared features in, in for each of them, which is that in terms of their own co-religionists within their own community, they were trying to define a very clear identity for what it meant to be a Sikh, a Hindu, a Muslim in this late colonial context, right, the late 19th century. They were trying to define not only the very clear, a very clear identity for what it meant to be a member of this religious community, but part of that meant drawing distinctions, right, from other religions. And so the unintended consequence of that attempt to really draw very clear boundaries between, let's say, who is a Sikh and who is a Hindu the unintended consequence of an attempt to draw that clean boundary was the increasing communalization of society. That these these identities not only were being being delineated in the religious sphere, in the social sphere, right, in cultural terms, but they also ended up being delineated as antagonistic in political terms. And so the scholarship on these movements and on the communalization of society, or that is the unintended kind of consequences of religious reform in political terms, the increasing communalization that contributes to 
to the events of, of 1947. And of course, if religious reform is one part of that equation, historians have also identified the role of the colonial state in fomenting kind of communal politics. So it's it's not to it's it's multi-causal, the communalization of society. But that communalization of society, the foundations for it are certainly being laid in the 1880s, 1890s by religious reform movements um, and, and on, and indeed through the literary mediums, right? Publishing is a really important part of their agendas and tract wars are an important element of what's happening. So we have much documentation about you know, the tract wars between the Arya Samaj and the Singh Sabha, between the Arya Samaj and the Ahmadiyya, an important Muslim revivalist movement in the Punjab at this time. Uh, we have important tracts, you know, between each of these communities and the, and the Christian missionaries who are active in the Punjab. So um, the literary realm or the print realm is being drawn into this. Right? And this is the established understanding of Punjab's history is that the reform movements emerge, they contribute towards this hardening of religious identities and this distinguishing these clear lines between communities that becomes increasingly antagonistic. At the same time, the colonial state is doing its part to contribute to a kind of political arena that is communalized, whether that is through the census, which identifies people on the basis of religious community, whether it's um, through things like separate electorates on the basis of religion. And these two streams coalesce to bring us the communalism that, that leads towards the partition of India. What my work shows is that while all of that is going on, you still have a very significant kind of cultural realm in which very different ethos are at play. And to my mind, it's not about replacing one narrative with another. It's about producing a more complex narrative for understanding that while things in the political arena may have been becoming more communalized, in the cultural arena, the shared culture, shared notions of piety, shared understandings of social moorings, these actually are continuing simultaneously. Um, and so, you know, the challenge for all of us is to understand, well, it's much easier if it was one thing or the other, right? That's much more comfortable. And one of the things that I'm challenging us to understand is that it's just not that simple. In fact, both of these things are happening. And what we have to do is find a way to kind of embrace the simultaneity in certain realms, increasing communalization, but the continuity of older ways of being in which, you know, you can have what I call the Punjabi literary formation in which your religious identity was not the grounds for your belonging, right? It was your linguistic identity and your participation in this shared arena and um, and your participation really in a kind of shared culture. Earlier, you mentioned that the Punjabi language had a relatively successful resurgence and is quite vibrant, right? Do you consider that in comparison to, say, you know, the outcome of Persian or Sanskrit in India? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I think of Punjabi as a success um, in that sense because one is that for as long as the the, the records that I've looked at um, have been around, right? So from the mid 19th century, people have been predicting the demise of Punjabi, right? Whether it was colonial officials saying, oh, this language is like, now that we haven't made it the official language, this language is going to die, or whether it's language activists, right? Pro-Punjabi activists in India and Pakistan who fear that the language is going to die because there's not enough state support. So one, one way of measuring the success of Punjabi is that Punjabi is not dead, right? Punjabi is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world, right? Um, it's got well over 100 million speakers just in the subcontinent. And then, of course, there's a vibrant diaspora where Punjabi is spoken. But I don't think that that's the only register for thinking about success, right? Is not Is that, well, it didn't die. But I would actually point to the cultural vitality of literary production in Punjabi, whether it's measured through, you know, the the writing of, uh, you know, any register, whether we want to think about Punjabi poetry, right, where across the globe, Punjabi, both in Punjab and in diaspora communities, there's a vibrant culture of Punjabi literary production, um, whether we want to think about forms like Bhangra and the way that Punjabi has, you know, uh, morphed with other traditions to become something new, or whether we want to think about, you know, the the circulation of Punjabi in in other kinds of media, right? The centrality of Punjabi culturally in Bollywood, for example, right, and and cultural production in Bollywood, where the the kind of Punjabification of Bollywood is something people have talked about, right? Whether it's dance sequences or the music. And I think that, so when I think about Punjabi, I think about a language that has, for all intents and purposes, never enjoyed state support, but its sources of vitality have always actually been other than the state, right? And I show in my book how there are certain institutions, I call them, right? Whether that institution is the Gurdwara, whether that institution is the Sufi shrine, whether that institution is a local theater, whether that institution is, you know, patronage in a village for a Kisa Khan, that the institutions that have sustained Punjabi have always been at a remove from the state. And that there is an affective relationship between Punjabi speakers and their language that also sustains this language, right? That is that if people did not value what they get from Punjabi, I actually think perhaps the language would have atrophied. Perhaps the language would have died. But, you know, given its vitality, whether gauged by the number of speakers, its circulation around the globe, or the vitality of its cultural forms and how they indeed have penetrated into other cultural arenas. Um, that to me is, you know, why I talk about Punjabi as thriving, right? Whether it's a question of success or failure, maybe that's not the right language, but it's certainly a language that's thriving. And whether, you know, I've been able to witness that 
um, through, you know, um, visiting with my family in, in the UK where Punjabi is a thriving tradition, whether that's sitting at a performance in Lahore where when, you know, a Punjabi tradition is performed, there's just a different response in the audience, whether that's being at a music festival in Ludhiana, right? I mean, all over the globe, I've had the privilege of, whether that that's at a Kavali performance in New York, which is one of my earliest experiences of a public performance of Punjabi. You know, in each of those spaces, I have been able to witness the affective relationship of Punjabi speakers with their literary and cultural tradition. And that to me, you know, that's at the foundation of my sense that this is a tradition that is thriving. One could look at the the glasses as half empty. I suspect I look at it as half full. Some people might talk about the ways in which um, younger generations are not as fluent in Punjabi as, you know, older generations, the, the way that younger generations may not be as well-versed in the literary traditions of Punjabi. But for my part, I think what I've seen is for a language that has never enjoyed state support or state patronage, it's a rather remarkable feat that it is, you know, kind of as vibrant as, as I think it is. Well, thank you so much, Professor Farina Mir, for coming on today and really outlining the historical timeline of the Punjabi language under the colonial rule to the present day. It's really been an honor to have you on this podcast series that we're trying to develop. It's also just absolutely amazing listening to the perspective you bring to the colonial history of the Punjabi language. I should add that I'm extra grateful for your book, having read it in a time where I'm a young father, motivated to pass on the Punjabi language to my daughter. And so I'm even more inspired to continue my efforts to keep trying now that I know the resilient history of the Punjabi language. So thank you once again for today's conversation, which I'm really excited to share with our listeners. All the best. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you.